How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I'm Jay. And you're listening to the Cinema Sideshow Podcast, episode 186. Ooh. Get out, Zeke. Okay. Get out of here. Makes my life really easy. <laughs> How are you, so Jake? It's a short, short discussion. I am good. I'm tired, yes. as I imagine you are as well. Very much so. But, um, and I want to thank you for letting us record it at this ghastly hour. It's okay. We've both got our... Of 8 p.m. And more loungewear on. That's true. Oh, I'm still... See, this is... I just wore lazy clothes to work anyway, <laughs> so... <laughs> and then I saw you the other day driving to Blake's, and I saw yeah. a handsome young man in a, in a... I wouldn't call it a suit. Would you call it... You've got a tie. you got a shirt. Yeah, yeah. 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 Classic handsome. teacher. I know. Paul Rudd. <laughs> from Perks of Being a Wallflower. Yeah, vibes. yeah. Or I'm Woody Harrison from Edge of Seventeen. I feel like I am more Woody That's Harrison than Paul Rudd, to be honest. The, Between the two of them, if I was to compare myself to one, it would definitely be more Harrison. I think. Yeah, than, fair enough. Than, uh, you got too much hair for it, though. Yeah, it's yeah. the only. I feel thing like I make a good can... McConaughey. But yeah, I tried. Let me fix it up. It was cool. I sent you the screenshot actually, because we were doing a late night candlelit concert VR shoot. But we had all the flat screen. We had two GH4s and and the, the Canon in there and everything. So, use the ATEM Mini Pro to um, put the four cameras on the TV. Mm. So I sent you that photo. It was pretty cool. And I was surprised I got the VR um, display on there as well. Didn't know you could do that mm. with the um, the far side as well. But no, that was it was really cool. That was like my mini career update right there. I know, teasing <laughs> it. It's a little shoot that I just did five minutes ago. But Zeke, yes. we're not talking about shoots that we've done. Mm. We're talking about... Jordan Peele's Get Out. Yes, I was thinking. I was trying to get the word "shoots" back into facts of the week for Jordan Peele's film, but alas, I couldn't do it. Zeke, tell me what? What? Just tell me. Just tell me, Zeke. Well, speaking what of are Jordan the fun facts, Peele. Mm. Due to the success of the film, Jordan Peele became the first African American writer, producer, and director to earn more than a hundred million dollars on a debut film. Oh, massive achievement! Mm. Has really kind of led to this now his upcoming third feature film. Yes. Um, which have you heard of it, Zeke? Will be nope. I have not. Uh, um, <laughs> what about you, Jake? What have you got mustered into the old trivial archives? Yeah, well, it, it cut. <laughs> that was a good segue. I liked it. The archives. Yes. I dug it up. I went through kind of like um, what's his name in Last Night in Soho, going through the old files in the yes. library. While all the spooky ghosts are in the wall. Exactly. <laughs> he's so in love with uh, Thomas and Mackenzie. He's, he's gone out of his way to do that. the most pointless character. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I like how I came up with a good excuse for why he's a pointless character. Yeah. I would say pointless, but useless. Definitely, definitely one of the funniest. Like, it's one of those moments when you walk out of a f- movie, not to get too tangential, but... We're talking about Last Night in Soho now. You walk, <laughs> you, like, you walk out of the movie and go, wow, that character is really useless. And then you see, like, the community's response was, wow, that character was really useless. Like, yeah. a means to an end character. And you're like... Well, I, I defend that film more than it maybe deserves to be defended. But that's okay. But um, I don't even know how we... I, I, <laughs> I don't know how in the world we got there. Yeah. My fact is also about something that Jordan Peele has said, not mm. so much what he's earned, in regards to the film, even though it was shot in uh, Alabama, I believe, mm-hmm. he specifically uh, didn't want the story to be interpreted as taking place either in the South or any red state, as he says, quote, that it felt too easy, 
and that he wanted this film to explore the false sense of security one can have with the New York liberal type. So sort of emphasizing that, not again, not the going the easy route of, oh, it's a red state, and oh, look at these Republicans, and it's like, no, 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 we're sort of leaning towards a more sort of a liberal yeah, no. suburban vibe and really playing with that expectation. Very clever. Very clever. I think that's very appropriate. Mm. And we can talk about the subtext in the film in the second half of the show. But, Jake, mm. this is a 2017 film, so it could potentially be it could. on the list behind me. It very well could be. I Zeke. do believe it is on that list. It is on that list. It's one of the very last films to make that list. Yes. Only a few, I think it's and literally it's, on rightly the last so. row. Rightly, rightly so. This fil- it's a very important film. Yeah. And like you said, it made a lot of money. It made a big splash. I think it won Best Screenplay, yeah. which I remember that because I saw this film, uh, I think it was actually January 1st, 2018. It was the first film I saw for 2018. So I, I had seen it when it was up for those Oscar noms. Mm-hmm. And I was surprised that it won Best Screenplay, but looking back on it, th- there's a lot of interesting context I want to get into my first view of this film and rewatching it recently. Um, but I'm really glad that it did in hindsight. Yeah. So I think we yeah. can explore whether this is like I mean it's a creative way of discussing the topics it's trying to touch on absolutely um, yeah and walks a, a line of gorish humor <laughs> which we can dive into that in the second half of the show indeed whether mm-hmm. it is the strongest film from around that time I think Ooh. we covered a film earlier in this show's conception that was probably a stronger Ooh. commentary Ooh. film that didn't get nearly as much praise. Ooh. Oh, I know what you're talking about. Yes. Like, bam. 185 options and I very quickly know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. Very early review with, with Jesse Newell, I believe, joined us on I that show. So. Oh, look at me go. <laughs> Speaking of films, though, Jake, what have you caught in the last week? I caught a little bit. I watched The Grey Man, Zeke. Oh, boy. I watched The Grey Man. The, it's- uh... The the, the the Russo the, statement the, film. The, the statement film. Oh, yeah. oh yeah, that's true. We're talking about that. Them taking their big grandstand opinion on the streaming platforms. Yeah, yeah. We talked. I actually can't remember what episode we talked. It was a, a few weeks ago. But yeah. look, it's um obviously when it's very low expectations. I pretty much completely one eighty on the Russos in the last few years. I obviously really really appreciate the way they did on their Marvel films. I'm I'm not being ironic. I actually think the preciseness of their direction for Infinity War and, and Endgame, and of course they did um, well, Civil War, but also um, The Winter Soldier, which is probably still widely considered the best Marvel film. Um, I I generally appreciated what they did in that scene and was sort of shocked by the, the, the disgrace mm. that has been Cherry in this film since. Like, I can't believe they went... Not indie, obviously. I mean, this film cost, what, $200 million. It's the complete opposite of uh, indie. But... You would think with the freedom that they have, they would have a little more to say in their directorial voice than just more big text on the screen. They're still doing it, Zeke. I would never get over that. The big pointless text. Oh, we're in, we're in, we're in Prague now. Yay! Oh, we're in... I can't even remember. See, yeah, I actually don't mind the big text thing. Yep, I hate it. But let's talk more about the story, plot, all that jazz. Yeah, look, it's basically this year's extraction that Chris Hemsworth did, what, a year or two ago. Mm-hmm. Another dumb, big blockbuster action film. There's no but. It, that's all it is. <laughs> I think I I was just immensely bored by it. I mean, there's so much happening on screen. One of the early fisticuff fights 
is literally in this like big cauldron thing with fireworks going off which is such a perfect analog for the story and plot of this film where it's this complete show. complete show you know look how cool our characters are look at these cheesy quippy lines of dialogue they're throwing which i i can't tell is meant to be like on the nose ton in cheek you know parody of itself dialogue delivery or if it actually is trying to be like a self-serious spy film. I can't tell. At least, unlike Cherry, I can at least tell they're trying to do the spy espionage Winter Soldier-esque storyline. And, and it's tough because they're competing with the likes of, especially in the, the spy assassin world of like things mm. like John Wick, which, you know, yeah. that, those films that are so action-heavy, but they're so obviously choreo- like we own. We, what made that film and that franchise so big is that there really are these action set pieces, but they're more a celebration of what stunt people can do. Absolutely. And the, and the, the shots are longer, the, the angles are wider. You yeah. get to actually see the action. And and the and the film, you know, it takes itself very seriously, but mm. it has that kind of underside of you're allowed to giggle a little bit at it. Like, yeah, of course. It's... Well, there's fun in the choreography. Yeah. And I just, there's no fun in the grey man. It feels like it's so... Con- concerned with trying to like throw things at you that it doesn't really care how you react to it and when I'm reacting incredibly bored in the first 20 minutes it doesn't really do anything to subvert that boredom or get me interested mm. uh, even the, the fact that I, it, I felt like it was sold on the whole idea of like oh it's Gosling v Evans but the movie's just Chris Evans in a chair being like oh tell that other guy to try and kill him Oh, he, he failed. Or I would tell that other guy to try and kill him. And then people's responses to it of like, you know, people are like, oh, Ana Diama is like, man, this, this is proof she needs her own spy film. It's like, has she not already done enough action, like femme fatale roles that we need to keep saying? No, like, I mean, this is the proof she needs to do this other thing. It's like, she's like doing it. It's like, yeah, I mean, you get the no time. Present you tense. Get the, you get the no time to die. <laughs> exactly. Um, first act where she's got this... Basically, you know, she's fully solidified in the in the film for that scene. They're very much almost alluding that we're going to see more of her in that Bond, um, sort of the Bond universe. world. Yeah, yeah. Um, whether that'll happen or not, but it's definitely alluded in that direction. Well, my thing is like, you go back to the age old thing of like side characters or um, supporting cast. Typically, they're more likable than your main protagonist because they have less responsibilities to the story. So they're allowed to be sort of different and not serve, you know, the hero's journey, for example. That's why like, everyone loves Han Solo more is, than Luke. And it's tricky because you're, you're not only taking Diamas, who's got this this background with the, like these little bit of action bits here and mm. there and, and such. You're also getting Gosling from Drive action. And you're it just makes him you want to watch Drive. Putting, yeah, yeah <laughs> put, puts you in that. And then you're taking Evans, who's obviously Chris Evans. Yeah. Like, how many action roles has he been, like pushed into his career well the funny thing is like the response i see with him is like oh he's not a boy scout in this film wow he's not captain america i'm like virtually every role he's ever done outside of captain america is is a pompous asshole spoiled brat yeah why is it like surprising anymore yeah, I, I was gonna say <laughs> like and like pre even another superhero like is johnny storm is yeah. like, a bit pompousy like <laughs> You know, you take it's like him in Sunshine, where he's a tool, and then right. like in Knives, Knives Out, Out with Arnie like, Yamas. You know, it's like 
Yeah. Yeah. I just I people just don't watch movies. <laughs> well, that's it's. I feel like the response to this film is so. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of people being like, "This film isn't great," but like the response again to like the typical, "Wow, Chris Evans is a great bad guy," or "Wow, Anna Diarmas can do action," or like Julia Butters. I can tell she's a good actress, but she essentially plays president's daughter in danger role, and it cannot escape from the confines of that role. Anyway, I don't want to talk about the Grey Man too much because it was just great. I literally, I forgot I had seen it the next morning mm. until I logged into Letterbox and I was like, "Oh yeah, I, a, I forgot I'd a, seen so, that." So it is a Grey State film. <laughs> literally, you couldn't <laughs> so so forgetful. And this led me to the perfect opportunity to watch another film, which I thought does kind of similar things, but very clearly better. And I was very much correct in this assumption. I finally watched Collateral. Okay. 2004, Jamie Foxx, Tom Cruise. Um, fantastic. Michael Mann, yeah. Michael Mann, of course. Just absolutely fantastic. The way it builds... See, the first like 20 minutes isn't even tension building. You could watch it cold, not realize it's a Michael Mann film, not realize that it's like an action thriller film because it eases you into the characters in that way. It's just such a... It's so removed from the grey man's just like, yeah. run, 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 establish plot, establish plot. It's a plot. short list to be one of Jamie, if not Jamie Foxx's best film. It's pretty up mm. there. Yeah. Oh, he plays it masterfully. Cause he, and that's it. He's given that time early on. He's driving the taxi cab. He's flirting with the lawyer who I, I didn't realize was Jada Pinkett Smith. That's <laughs> that's quite interesting now watching <laughs> after everything that's happened over the last few years with her. And... It's oh he's you know he's sweet and he's he's kind but he has his mm. dreams and they just establish in all these like clever little ways before getting into you know the cold ruthless pragmatic killer that is Tom Cruise and his performance is just incredible as well yeah like I remember seeing a lot of stuff in like his performance is great and it, and it absolutely is you know, the dichotomy between those two is just so interesting yeah and all the action and the, and the fun and the, and the intensity of it all which is all like. I'm riveted the whole two hours. There's not a slow moment in it, but it's all surrounding these interesting philosophical dis- discussions between these two characters and all the dialogue moments mm. about the way they view the world and, you know, working for what you think is worth versus just doing like, like Tom Cruise's character does just doing what you need to do to get the job done, which includes killing a lot of people all the time. But I just loved all of that. And it was, you know, it was obviously one of the first films to be shot, I think, fully in digital. There's a scene or two in 35, and I think Fincher sort of took it to that next level where I think all of Zodiac is mm-hmm. video, or yes. HD video. Uh, yeah, it's something like that. I think I wrote it down, the actual yeah. Zodiac's the first used. complete digital film. Gotcha, gotcha. So it's sort of like Nolan with like the half IMAX yeah. stuff with Batman and, and, and doing all that. But I actually found it... I mean, it definitely looks like cheap in areas, not in a bad way, kind of like the you found footage films of today that way where you could kind of feel the production and you can actually feel the people on set crafting these shots and putting it together. But it kind of works in this neo-noir sort of Wong Kai Wai fallen angels way as well, where it's like, wow, they really created a character out of this, you know, neon lit dark night LA setting. Mm -hmm. And it all takes place in one night. I was just like amazed by how well it set the scene even though it's this sort of very aged-looking digital video now. For sure. But it, it just worked to create that atmosphere. Anyway, so that total polar opposites of how to do sort of your thriller action films. Of course, Michael Mann is the the uh, the king in that regard. They're doing Heat 2, is that? I heard that. 
A prequel? Oh, man, are they going to fight each other in uh, <laughs> Xenoframes? <laughs> well, I, can't, I would assume, obviously, if you've watched Heat, like, a certain, like, one of them dies. It's the revenge story from The Irishman. Or the other way around. Yeah. The Irishman is the revenge story of... <laughs> So I, I don't one really of those know two how I don't even know how functional Al Pacino is in general. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, mean, like, I'm sorry, but like, watch that's the Irish, like, watch the Irish. That's their, it's, that's their epilogue. That's to it, that, yeah. the, that genre. Like, you should, we should never see De Niro, Pacino, or how am I blanking? How am oh, I? Oh, Pesci. Pesci. Sure. Shouldn't see any of them in gangster or crime dramas it's ever done. again. They're right. done. They're retired. <laughs> Let it go. Just like Scorsese, you should never do a crime drama ever again. Mm. Are the Killers of the Flowers, Moonflower, whatever it's called, is that a crime drama? So there's a new one? Yeah. I have to read about it. It's you a know, book. I, it's a book. Does it not feel like like that was the whole point? I mean, we talked about The Irishman a couple of years ago. To, to wrap up that genre and that legacy of filmmaking. Especially I, yeah. now with like, you know, Ray Liotta passing away this year. It's yeah. like, what what's left to give from, what does Scorsese have to offer to that? So he, man, that's you. fair enough. I mean, it's nice. To, it, man, has, I don't think he's done that yet, has he? No. The, the wrap up sort of. No. Yeah. That's I would have liked enough. him to do, not Heat though. I would have liked him to focus maybe more on like a Denzel one. Sure. Man sure. on Fire is great, isn't it? Oh, no, it's Tony Scott. That is Tony Scott, yeah. Do. I've got it somewhere, the Man on Fire on um, the DVD collection. But, yeah, I'll throw it to you. What, what have you been watching, Zeke? Very quiet week, honestly. Sure. Um, the only thing I really watched more so, well, I watched, technically I watched Bride Wars. Oh, really very good. To, don't need to talk too much about that. That's, no? Yeah, well, it's Kate Hudson, Anne Hathaway, you know, Rom-com Bridal War. Hell yeah. Uh, take three <laughs> guesses who I watched that with. Um, <laughs> it was me, wasn't it? Yes, 100%. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, it's a, it's a quaint drama. It's a bit of fun. It's, weird. it's always weird seeing early Chris Pratt in movies. Like, it's 2007. Oh, okay. So you see Chris Pratt. Like, even, like, in Her, it's like at that point he had been in Parks and Rec for about five or six years, whereas, like, this is, like, at the start of Parks and Rec. Oh, okay. So very early. Um... Another film, I, I didn't watch anything else, really. That was it. The only other thing I've been watching, which admittedly I've watched the first two seasons now completely, Ooh. is uh, Man Seeking Woman. Now, I don't know if I've talked... Ma- I don't... This doesn't sound familiar, much no. In the show. Maybe I've never brought it up on the show. I watched a couple of episodes oh, six months ago. I liked it, but I didn't really sit down and give it its time. So it's, it's three sure. ten-episode seasons. This is a perfect segue to my next thing, by the way. Just oh, a heads up. Great. Yeah. And it's sort of, it stars um, Jay Bushnell and, oh, how do I always forget his name? I'm going to hate myself for it. Um, Seth Rogen. No, but Seth Rogen was in the most oh, recent episode as a... Oh, there you go. No, I always forget his name. And then I'll Caleb see Eric Andre. Eric, oh, Eric of Andre. Eric Andre. That's it. Um, And Eric Andre. And they're both best friends and... Basically, what I can only describe it as is it's a cruder version of The Secret Life of Walter Mitty in terms of its um, cuts to weird, surrealist parts of the world, except in Walter Mitty, those are only in his brain, whereas Mm. these are just in the world. So an example is like... Bershnall has just been dumped by his girlfriend in the first episode, and then his sister sister (laughs) sets him up with an actual troll, not like... Oh. Not like, yeah, and obviously like it's, a big it's old implica- troll. It's that implication humor where it's like, we all know what 
sort of the reality of this thing is, okay. but it's a physical embodiment of a troll or like those guys who seem to be really charming with girls have got the ability to spiralize, like hypnotize women with their eyes. And like oh. they fit and on. it's got that absurdist humor that Eric Andre is particularly known for, like sure. that over the top, just like straight face. This is the most absurd thing, but I'm pretending it's taking it seriously. Yeah. Does he it's... do, like, interviews with celebrities? Yeah, or, like, and he does, like, the ridiculous things in the interviews. I saw one with the actress who plays... Oh, God, what's that Disney show I'm thinking of? She plays Max. Is it Max? I don't know. But I've... I've the interviews, you're right. Kind of yeah. like Between Two Ferns style. But more absurd. Sure. Whereas, like, Galifianakis yeah. just plays, like, an idiot in, yeah. in Two Ferns, whereas Andre goes, just does ridiculous things, like, doesn't have his pants on, just stands up. Like, yeah. Like, no issue. And and to be honest, that's sort of the why the casting's kind of perfect because, you know, Jay Brishnell has played the same type of character, much like Seth Rogen. Yeah. A close friend plays a very similar character, the scrawny, uh, you know, um, scrawny, no sort confidence. fast talker, just, yeah. He's just hiccuping everything, let's be real. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and to be honest, it, he plays his character again, but it's it actually is legitimately, like, a really funny show. Like That's great. In terms of comedies, it hits it. It doesn't pull any punches. It's absurd. Like, in one episode, Jay gets a gets a girlfriend and gets then abducted and put in a prison van that's led by Eric Andre. And he takes them out to the suburbs where all of the husbands are. And, like, they talk to them like they're recovering addicts. Yeah. So, but it's, <laughs> so it walks that line of almost, like, the SNL skits sure. meets, like... This contem- like this contemporary commentary, and it like integrates the two seamlessly, and it makes it really fun. It's a very funny sort of show. Yeah, and I've watched the first two seasons. There's three seasons. They're really all pretty short, it. short, sharp seasons. Hopefully, there'll be a fourth season. I think Disney just picked up the show. It was actually oh, produced by YouTube. Oh, so, okay. YouTube original, YouTube Red. I don't know if it was a YouTube Red, but it was only available on YouTube. So I don't know who was funding it. Right, but I assume YouTube. Me, Standard. I was funny as like surprise. It's actually a really solid show, and to be <laughs> honest, that's sort of the mood I'm in because you know, get to the end of a long, long day. Sure, you want to watch wanna, a simple, easy to consume comedy, and they're few and far between. Yeah, no, especially nowadays. So, well, the death go. of the, the modern day comedy. <laughs> well, speaking of absurd shows with police vans and needing a second chance at life, I tied a lot of those together. I watched the fifth season, also known as the uh, Resurrection season of Prison Break. Now, I don't know how much we've talked about Prison Break, Zeke. This is a show's got, show goes back a while. So you only watch, you say you watched the fifth season. There's a fifth season. So what happened is, and I should clarify, Prison Break took my like television virginity. Yeah, it's like um, I didn't. It was know- around the same time as My Name Is Earl. Right, wanna, right. Into integrate channel seven yeah channel seven there you <laughs> go that's seven it tv shows that's it i was what eight years old tuning into channel seven every week watching this show mm. just curious how it was gonna yeah. go i didn't understand the concept of a serialized it, television so, i thought it was like a new movie it, every single it, week and it was at the cross-section between that and lost like yeah i think break. lost was sort of like kind of like mad men to to breaking bad it had a couple years on it yeah. A couple of years ahead. There was a time when they were both running at the same time, but as mm. Lost was declining, Prison Break was kind of going up. It was like that cross-section. Yeah, yeah. And I, and Prison Break was huge. It was yeah. huge, at least from what I remember. And Heroes. 
And oh, you know what? I reckon Hero is probably a better comparison mm. than Lost, at least for the Channel Seven serialized television. What a, what a that was a time. Throwback. That was a time. But here's the thing, Zeke. I loved Prison Break. Adored mm. it. And and I was, I remember by the time I understood how to sort of watch stuff early on the interwebs when I was oh, what four years later. So I guess it would have been like twelve mm. um, in Queensland watching the last few episodes of Prison Break, but. I think it was because it went big on Netflix that they did a resurrection season. They did nine new and it was episodes. Only, yeah, it was, it was only a couple of years ago, if I recall. I think it? 2017, yeah. which I did try to watch it then as it came. I watched the first two uh, for those two weeks, and I kind of just lost interest. I finally sat... I was like, I'm going to do it. I'm gonna, it's, it's only nine episodes. Yeah. I owe this show that much. So I finally did it. I watched the last nine episodes of Prison Break. Now... Here's the thing about Prison Break. Obviously, I got the rose-colored goggles on watching the show. I can admit it jumps the shark very, very quickly. It's what? It's by season three. Oh, they're breaking out of another prison. This one's a Panamanian jail, and oh, now they're breaking into all these government agencies and stealing digital key cards to corrupt the. Go- it it very quickly veers away from brother tries to break other brother out of prison. Well, Which is such fair, a great concept. Yeah, it is, a, it is a great concept, but it's also um, probably only one or two seasons <laughs> worth of content. They really. got look. They weren't strapped for ideas, that, but they may have been strapped for very good ideas. <laughs> if you know but what then I mean. This is kind of, if I recall, this is a consistent. You know, we're talking about this golden age of channel sure, seven TV, channel or, seven. or mostly just free to access TV, because obviously yes. all these are American shows. We watched them on free air TV. Pretty, yeah. They would have been put on like mainstream AMCs and and um, I think Prison I, Break was Fox, if I remember. Yeah, so they're, they're on the mainstream sort of hub of TV shows, yeah. and they all had similar problems where they would have like two seasons that were like god great mm. that hooked you. I love season two of Prison and Break, and then then they yeah. go, then they start to yeah, like you said jump the shark. Like I remember Lost was what. Actually had about three seasons of good legs on it, and then yep. it was just a mess. And then Heroes, <laughs> I think, ran the same trajectory: two, three seasons of really solid stuff, and then they started contradicting themselves and stuff. And I don't even know how Supernatural got sixteen seasons, but here we yeah. are. Yeah, like, I think a lot of that is now, especially you know, we're so used to television like like this new season of Prison Break. It's only nine episodes. We're used to 10, 13 episode runs of shows now, where a lot of the budget is is not spread as thin. As it was before, and it's like Prison Break was almost running non-stop mm. for four years. It was very few breaks between seasons, and like the mid-season finale, which I didn't realize they had those as well. Yeah, but twenty-two episodes per year of you know forty-five minute extended dramas. No wonder they run out of ideas quick, and especially something like Prison Break, which yeah, the idea on the season one they break out of prison, season two they're on the run. That's as great as it's gonna get, and then it doesn't. It gets more repetitive after yeah. that, and and this new season, I swear to God, Zeke. In the first 20... No wonder I gave up on it originally. The first 20 minutes, they're already teasing that Michael's back from the dead. They have Lincoln literally digging up his grave to find clothes in there, which then have a clue to get his identity, which means Michael intended for him to dig up a gravesite. Then a random government person phone controls Lincoln's car, so he drives off a cliff teabag it's a, a, a robot arm this happens in the first 20 minutes of episode one and by the end of the season bloody links on a gatling gun in yemen with all these war torn streets and michael jumps out of a boat to avoid a missile it turns into call of duty it's 
bonkers, Zeke. It is so <laughs> bonkers. And I am just shocked with all of that in mind that they kind of stayed true to their characters. Like, Link is still recognizably Link. They all kind of look the same, which everyone's complaining about Walt and Jesse in, in Better Call Saul. I was like, well, of course they're going to look 13 years older than they did in the other version of the scene. But in the same token, I was shocked watching this. They all look the same. Yeah. They look identical, and it's like, I don't know if there's a... So that, well, no, it's the power of the bald man. The, pa- <laughs> the power of the bald man, That's yeah. That's why Jason Statham's look the same age for about oh, 15 years. That's true. That's a good point. It's the but power of the bald. To, look, I, I have no ill will against this resurrection season, yeah. other than just the most bonkers, ridiculous ideas. It's not like they slowed down and like, all right, let's really try and get to its roots and sort of ground a lot of these ideas. They just went even further into the madness. Look, I give you respect <laughs> for at least finishing it like, yes I, I need like to. i didn't i wasn't strong enough to do it with my name as well i got halfway through season three and i was like i'm oh, losing steam again like <laughs> but this, this, this is not... what a five-year thing for me yeah it's 2017 i was yeah. probably busy watching rick and morty at this point it's tough though because and it's, it's tough to go back to like could you even contemplate even watching something like lost or heroes now like i would love to but you're right. There's just a different tone to them where it's they throw so many episodes at you that downgrade by the third season as opposed to a lot of things now do tend to, you know, to be honest, get I mean, better over it's time. It's very fair to say something like Walking Dead was like the final ship to go down with this 22-episode ep- epics. Like sure. These epic yeah. seasons because, you know, and only now is it finally like, oh, okay, maybe we should wrap this up despite the fact... N- no one I know is watching it. No one no, I know thinks no it's good. No one's watched, yeah, Walking Dead in years. <laughs> so it's like the great, it's like the great ship that's trying to carry the old ways of of drama TV with these sixteen, seventeen, twenty episode yeah. seasons, where they're just like, I mean, you know, I love the second season of Walking Dead, but it's very fair to say not a lot happens in it, like yeah. in terms of big set pieces until right at the end, and that's only a fourteen episode season. But when they start to get into their what what's argued what the golden age of walking dead which is what three very four, early three, four, <laughs> four, one to four and then like three and four have like proper 20 episode seasons but then we see when they start to go to those 20 to 22 episode seasons the quality declines very quickly yeah. well the problem with walking dead is right off the bat amc just cut their budget just destroyed their budget in like season two so they were kind of doomed from the get-go. It's not like the writing. Amazing they kept it as good as it did then. For yeah. As they did. It's a shame the writing didn't. <laughs> well, unfortunly... I, I, what can they the do? Problem, well, know? the problem... We've always talked about the problem with that was is the fact that characters die and then the ones that replace them are like lesser shells of the ones that came before and yeah. then you find yourself not getting attached to any characters and then... Like, you know, season seven, episode one comes around and... No, who's left? Them, and it's like, you know, Glenn gets killed and suddenly everyone's like, oh, maybe I'm back here. And then they'll come three episodes later and they're like, nah, I'm gone again. Like, yeah. <laughs> like that was that kind of one... The big like problem is, as well is... I wish more shows would try this, even though I hated it when they did it in Walking Dead, but they would do entire episodes dedicated to just very specific character arcs where they would split the characters up for half a season... Oh, and well, then they all get their own episodes. It's that. And it's it just that's did the not second half of season four. Uh, yeah, the terminus arcs they were really solid. Like that. Was I, the first... I, but it was up and down for me. But you know, no, Every some second... were really average and some were really good. Sure, but yeah. I just I, like they did not have enough good characters 
to do that well enough. You that's know what I mean? Something though, that's something that's died with this this sort of conversation we're talking about because that used to happen in Lost a lot. They used right. to do that with characters in Lost. And it's probably to save money, bottle episodes. Yeah. Essentially. Because then they'd have these big set piece episodes that cost most of their budget. Yep. And then they'd be like, oh man, we've got another 16 episodes. <laughs> what do we, we can't always we have Gatling guns out. and missile yeah. dodges. Like, <laughs> uh, I had to send that missile dodge to a few people. I was like, guys, this is what, this is real. <laughs> to be fair, you hear the title Prison Break. You're like, how did you get five seasons? <laughs> like, I know, it's crazy. You know, there's no ambiguity in it. Like, at least when you hear Breaking Bad, you're like, what does that mean? Like yeah. you kind of get it by the end of the season. Oh, he bro- even by the end of the first episode. Oh, he's breaking bad. He's becoming. Yeah, a- that, li- that's literally a line. Jesse says he says break bad mm. in the in the pilot episode. I'm like, yeah. and meanwhile, Better Call Saul. I don't think they actually use that phrase until like season six. <laughs> they really elongate the development in that show. Two episodes yeah. left, Zeke. Two episodes left. Okay. Oh my god. Anyway, so I gave Prison Break that final chance. And before I forget. Should I shout out Ice Age to the Absolutely. Meltdown? The Meltdown. We watched. The, I always wanted to one. I watched the Ice more Age than ones. the first one. Really. Oh, there you go. Yeah. It's it's funny because it's fun and it's funny and the characters are great, but there's so many like weird. It, it's almost like Ted Two, where there's so many things that happen that don't don't serve the plot at all. Oh, but Ted Two is like nonsensical. At least Ted. Yeah. Some at logic least this is. Ice it's like oh, there's a random scene where baby Sids or baby Sloths takes Sid to worship him. It's like at least that is tied up at the end with like his found family arc of not yeah. feeling respected, and he's at least there's like things there to tie to the arc. Yeah. But in terms of a plot, it was like oh, it's kind of no real. Oh, there's no real. There's no real villain in that Ice Age. The 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 um. The birds, or the the they're not eagles. I wonder if kids like that yeah. because I, mm. you know, all they care about now are the minions. It's like, does anyone even watch? <laughs> is, Ice there Age? A, is there like a villain the in minions? <laughs> to be honest, it is very odd hearing the voices in Ice Age because whoever thought Ray Romano or like John Linguizimo would be voice <laughs> actors in a children's film after like, his big turn in Super Mario Brothers? Yeah, like it, they're just not. The people you normally like, whenever I see Ray Romano, Dennis now, Leary like, I think as of a well. Mammoth. Yeah, yeah, Dennis Leary. Like yeah. they're such <laughs> weird choice. To be honest, DreamWorks used to have the weirdest casting choices for their voice actors. Right, like over the hedge casting lists. Like Bruce Willis, is Chris, Chris Evans. It a Bruce Willis is in that. My God, Bruce no, Chris, Willis. Uh, is... not, uh, Chris. Uh, do, do, do. Steve. What the hell, Steve Carell. Steve Carell. That's who I was. Why did I say Chris? <laughs> <laughs> but even no, Madagascar, can't, well, and then Madagascar, yeah, where it's got like Chris Rock and Ben Stiller. Like, I kind of get it, at least with that, because you're sort of like, oh well, Chris <laughs> Rock. They were just trying to find an Eddie Murphy. That one. just makes that just makes me think of the meme where <laughs> not Alex the Lion, um, Oscar the fish <laughs> slaps <laughs> the zebra. <laughs> yeah, no. And Gloria the hippo's standing there. <laughs> I can't wait to be like 50 and they'll be like, what's 20, what was 2022 like? And I'm like, get your wife's name. (laughs) (laughs) Is that the most, that is the most iconic moment of the year so far, for sure. Uh, I guess so. I can't, it's actually been a pretty iconography less year. Well, Death to 2022 is going to be a very boring film. As compared to the last one? Well, the last one was god awful as it was. I guess the bubble came out. Speaking oh, of the bubble, <laughs> no. Oh, you've seen the bubble, haven't you? Yeah, I have. Oh god, 
Let's not talk about the bubble. Please. Do you have any career updates before we jump into the film of the week? Um, no, that's fine. That the concert was fun. But so then, speaking really... of the bubble, oh, <laughs> we're going to jump. We're in a bubble. To famous Jordan Peele's greatest film, The Bubble. No, um. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, well, now we're going to jump into his first uh, film, his directorial feature debut. Yes. Jake, what are we watching? This week on the show, Zeke, we're watching Get Out. How do you feel now? I can't move. You can't move. Why can't I move? You're paralyzed. Just like that day when you did nothing. You did nothing. Now, sink into the floor. Wait, 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 wait. Sink. Girlfriend Rose go upstate to visit her parents for the weekend. At first, Chris reads the family overly accommodating behaviour as nervous attempts to deal with their daughter's interracial relationship. See, get out of here. It's, it's pouring <laughs> down her rain. It's actually the Wizard of Oz. We're about to be swept off. Oh. Are there any Wizard of Oz uh, references or callbacks the, the, in this There is film? a lot of red in the final couple of scenes. <laughs> And I assume he one wants of the to go. I assume he wants to go home. Yeah, exactly. Click so. those hills. It's the equivalent of hitting the T against the the the, the little the spoon. Yeah, <laughs> I forgot what words were for just a second. So we, we have, uh, yeah, we've obviously teased this film, and we've done mm. a Jordan Peele feature film on here before, episode we, twelve. Yeah, we did us, which was the only podcast we've ever done with four people on the panel. There you go, and, Jack uh, Benton, Chloe Holmes. Yeah, it was pretty much just a a pickathon of of I understood that reference. No, I understood this reference. I I actually loved it. I thought that was a fantastic little post movie discussion. That episode that was fresh too. It was so fresh. We drove straight from the movie theater to the studio. <laughs> this we've had a a few more years to marinate on the film, which I'm glad we did in a lot of ways. It's a great film. Yeah, absolutely. So, Jake. Get out. Okay. <laughs> no, this is obviously it's a we we talk, we did talk a little bit about the subtext and the sort of the importance this film mm. had, and I think it got a lot of acclaim because of its interesting way in uh you know attempting to get that subtext. Sure. Um, like obviously, sort of alluding that it's one thing, and then it kind of takes this drastic turn somewhere else. Mm. And, you know, then it becomes, it very quickly shifts from a sort of an investigation film to a survival film. <laughs> um, yeah, trying to figure out the mystery before uh, 
before that's not so relevant anymore because you're about to die. Yes. You're about to have your organs taken out of you. Yes. I gotta say, it's, it's been, what, four and a half years since I've seen this film, and the fact that I remembered a lot of the twist, how the story actually unfolds, the ending, the fact that, like, all of that was so fresh in my mind after four and a half years, that says a lot about this film mm. because there were plenty of horror films, plenty of mystery films where I just, I sort of blank. I'm like, how did that end again? How did this go? Yeah. And I think this film puts it all together in such a neat little package that is, you know, for the time, and I think, you know, the the seal of quality is here. You could have released this film 10 years earlier or 10 years later, and I think it still would have got the praise and the love it did. Yeah. But what I think is so special about it coming out smack bang in 2017 is that that is a point where I think so many people, including myself, were sort of on the bandwagon of, you know, films that are political or with or social political commentary or, you know, if, if there's a character that's gay, it needs to be subtle, you know. this The narrative can't be built around that. It needs to be subtle. It needs to be laced into the world. And I'm so glad that this film kind of turns that around. It's like, we're just going to put a magnifying glass on this. And the, the film is so integrally important to the race of every single character, the delivery of every single character, every single line that's said, mm-hmm. and how it's interpreted by other characters. It's it's very... I mean, when we talked about us, we're picking it apart because it's just so... I don't know if methodical is the right word, but it's very detail-oriented. Mm. And there's, there's a lot to read into. There's a lot under the surface. And um, I think having that time away from that mindset of... Not that I thought this film needed to be more subtle, mm. but especially now understanding that we've sort of come away from that bandwagon of, no, I think films are allowed to beat you over the head with it. And we'll talk about like the alternate endings and stuff, but I was watching those being like, oh, it's Promising Young Woman. Oh, it's 1984, which are other examples of sort of bash you over the head with mm. social political commentary that can totally works. Yeah. And I think Jordan Peele, especially because it's his first film, just... Fantastic. Knocked it out of the park. First yeah, go. Yeah, and I think another point at 2017 was mm. a lot of the politically charged or, like, racially charged films, these films that were really wanting to address these issues, actually took more the... often took uh, the historical lens yes. or context yes. to address this stuff. So... You know, at this time, some of the promising, uh, well, some of the most flagship examples of sort of race dramas and stuff were like things like 12 Years a Slave. and mm, yep. Or they were embedded in sports films or they were embedded particularly in stuff that was, if it was more contemporary, it was often laced with ulterior means. So it wasn't quite mm. the direct plot. You most know, all re- these films had a thing at the end that said, but now things are good. Yeah. Things are good now. This was before. And, and you know, <laughs> it's like 12 Years Slave, though, in and or even like Lincoln, if we're talking about 2017, mm. we're really starting to push into that sort of time where they're addressing it from that historical point. They're, what they're doing is that they are also pushing distance on it. So yeah, it comes back to, oh, but now it's different, where it's like, and the only person who's actively sort of made this sort of aggressive stance or constantly asking us to address the contemporary issues spike lee really yes that's a great comparison um, and uh, he's really I mean, what black Klansman's a better year, year after, after this yeah um yeah. but you know he's been doing that since do the right thing so he's yeah. been consistently doing that so to have another voice in there that's consistent now trying to admittedly 
like much like Black Klansman, mm. like that has the historical context and then it has that archival footage at the end. So it's still yeah. potent. It still res- like resonates. Yeah. Well, but that that is, is the entire point of that film, isn't it? Is that it is a period piece until it's not. Yeah. That's what makes the ending so damn good in that film. Yeah. Whereas this film's like taking something like a horror trope and adding more substance to it than a traditional like, oh, this is just a guy who's came into a cultish community of mm. body snatchers and is surviving. No, no. We're going to put that racial layer there, that political commentary, that stance, because we can do that. Mm. And then we're actually systematically also creating a, a horror genre film that has substance and layers to it rather than just a simple survival film. Well, that's what gave this film so much more texture because, I, you know, you pitching it, I couldn't even imagine it until you just pitched it, but, like, imagine this film where it was just, say, every character's white and there's no sort of race undertones to any of the, I mean, undertones, overtones, in-your-face tones, whatever you want to yeah. call it, but it's such a different movie and it's such a more bland film because it, it's just a baseless, oh, here are some psychopath characters that kidnap people and, and take their organs. Yeah, and... And, and to, there's no texture compared to what this film does with that. Yeah, and it, it and, and a good example is, I think, a film that came out not too long after this or okay. around the same time. was called The Invitation. And it was a sort of a bottled film that was set in a house with about eight or nine people. And it was basically how a ex-boyfriend goes to his ex-girl, like, partner's party... Mm. And they had some trauma that led to her sort of systematically joining this cult in which they basically commit their own uh, purge inside the house. And, you know, there's things like The Hunt or, you know, like these sort of bottle sort of thriller stuff. But obviously there was no, like, political commentary or anything like Mm. that. It was very traditional. And it it has engaging aspects to it because it still has the investigation aspect. But it's not nearly as as remarkable, unique as something like this. It has mm. not just um, the investigation aspect, like why Chris, when he takes photos, does it snaps people out of trance? Sure, yeah, and have this frantic sort of phase, or why the gardeners are sprinting like, around <laughs> in what can only be described as the most impromptu jump scare you can ever get. Oh my god, I can't. That actually taps a little bit into my highlight scene. That exact scene, but. You're right. It's like every single sort of, not even trope, but let's call it like horror trope or jump scare or or mystery to the narrative. It is all completely laced under race. Laced under race. Absolutely. That's my rhyme. And <laughs> it, you're right because it just it creates... You can't walk out of this film. You can't cover your eyes. You can't pretend like this film is anything but a gigantic commentary on where we are in terms of race relations today and this film's you know it's five years old and jordan peele's made a couple more films since then but it still is today i mean that's why the apartment at the start is so modern and recognizable mm. and um i just flash back to the halloween-esque opening scene <laughs> with yes. lakeith stanfield which i'm glad now that i'm watching this knowing how far he went along as well as daniel coulier and everyone it's like ah, oh, this is just and I mean, we, we've blocks. talked about Sorry to Bother You and how we find that's mm. a very similar... I mean, that's way more absurdist in its approach. Sure. It takes a, they use, like, the, the white voices. I mean, this film kind of does a little bit of that. With yeah. Literally, his character, <laughs> where he pronounces the suburb with the white voice. <laughs> but even that, like, just everyone's delivery of... 
you have very naturalistic delivery versus you know this this white mm. family and especially sort of the in- entranced um, black folk here of just they're very polite, very uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, it's not structured, but there, there's there's an overly polite and unnaturalistic delivery of all of their lines, mm. and I thought um, just that direct comparison right there. And and that's not only why we recognize that things are going wrong, but just we're in Chris's headspace. Yeah. And he just can't make heads or tails of anything that's going on around him. So yeah. I, I think the, the, just not necessarily the dialogue itself, but the delivery of the dialogue from every character, and especially his friend. I'll get his... I'm Rod. Forgetting his name. Rod, that's it. Um, who initially, when I first watched this film, I was like, ah, oh, you know, comic relief. It's a bit much... I yeah, Rod really frustra- Rod frustrates me. Frustrates you? Yeah. Okay. I just think he's. But we'll, okay, finish your thoughts. Sorry. No, I was gonna say like watching it now, I completely one eighty on that. Where, um, again, I mean, it's to do with the delivery and that. It's sort of the most comfortable conversations that they ever have in this film between those two characters. Everything else is sort of. And and um, Rod is mm. the embodiment of the audience. Like he's the character that. You know, he's saying like all of these, like, "Oh, this is all whack. This is not. Yeah, this is yeah. crazy." Like, I know. He's he's, he's guessing the job. plot of the film he as is. it's playing out. <laughs> yeah. So, I feel like that's nothing more than comic relief, and I think it's a little on the nose sometimes. Um, I don't sure. think he has the same resonance as something like the sheriff in Misery, who's sort of this right. outside character moving into the world. Right. Um. And and obviously we talked about how likable that character is. Rod's funny, like you do mm. get like you're entertained by him. Yeah. But does he detract from the the substance? Maybe not. Maybe he adds a bit of levity because if this film goes too far down the dark and right. rabbit hole, it, it might end up losing a bit of itself. So maybe Rod's levity helps. Um, and as we've now seen, that's not that is a reoccurrence because mm. similar things happen in, in us with Peel's direction, he does like, and even in the trailer for Nope, you can kind of see it's going okay. to be falling. Like he does like to having these really heavy topics and really dark stories, but then having that comedic right. levity. I mean, I seem to recall there were multiple moments in us where you were kind of laughing a little bit. Because, sure. Yeah. You know, it's like when the, the perfect white family were all sitting in the house, like having a good time and they all just came in and just got yeeted. Like, <laughs> Um, yeah well even then they're playing um yeah what are they playing under it something funny surf boys or um surfing the usa is that no it's all the beach boys something like that they're playing something like it's funny and even in the nope trailer where they're both you know like the the use of the word it's it's clearly pushing that like comedic side so maybe he's he simply is a, a rod's just simply a, a consistent directorial style mm. see because i that when i first saw it i kind of thought the same thing of like it, it's kind of it's levity but it's it's very distracting levity and it's sort of taken away from what is meant to be building this creepy atmosphere but i think because he does turn out to be so important to the plot and and going back to what i was saying about the delivery of these lines and uh, he's the only person that chris can actually talk to one-on-one and that they're making sense of the situation together it just it worked better for me the second time around and i can't quite put my finger on why because i think in theory you're right 
it I think shouldn't he's actually likeable. work. He's very likable. And then they both become these very likable characters. And Rod definitely has concern and care for Chris. So that embodies the audience. Mm. And that allows you to become empathetic towards both of them. Like, you never feel like Rod's in trouble. No. But because no. he knows Chris is in trouble, that sort of adds that extra level of yeah. tension and emotion. I think. Well, I think so. that's the comparison to the sheriff in Misery is, you know, the, f- the closer he gets to solving... Uh, sort of the the mystery element of it, the more well you would assume um, that that um, how am I forgetting her name Annie Annie's uh, yeah. the the danger that she becomes increased and then or or it's vice versa where the closer he gets to figuring out the more danger he himself gets well, into that's sort of what but you like, you I... don't have that feeling I think in Get Out or at least with Rod's character. No, he's got enough distance the, from the scenario. True, but as he, they start to work it out together, Chris is increasingly getting yes, in trouble. Yes. So his stakes are being risen. So, and having Rod so far away kind of makes him powerless to intervene. Mm. And until until you know, he's not, well, yeah. Well, until <laughs> final moments of the film, really. Yeah. And which that in itself, I think, I think what he is is just the subversion of expectation because I think there there is such a expectation particularly of black characters in horror films and i think they just wanted to tweak with that a little bit where not only do these two sort of leading black characters survive but kind of help each other out as well but i think rod is unusually removed from the danger in a way that we as an audience aren't used to seeing and i think that's why his entrance at the end of the film is such a a surprise greatest greatest tsa agent around (laughs) (laughs) He's a, he's a prideful man. He's proud of his job. Yeah, I like it. Should we talk about some of those alternative endings? They yeah, have? well, I think because they good. really do play into the the social commentary of this film could have leaned into one way or another. So the alternate ending that they did shoot, it's on YouTube, and I watched it last night. Is that pretty much plays out exactly the same until the police lights arrive and surprise, it actually are two police officers who arrest Chris because he's you know, obviously choking this white girl out. And it ends with him and Rod sort of on the other end of a, a prison cell on the phone call. And uh, it pretty much has this, uh, like I compared it to Promising Young Woman, a very sort of dour, bittersweet ending where he, Chris loses, but it's, it's sort of for the greater good because now that this family is still dead. They can't keep doing this to other people. They can't keep kidnapping them and like, harvesting their organs and all of this. But at the cost of Chris's freedom and his life in a lot of ways... Uh, and then the other one they didn't shoot is that Rod arrives at the, would you call it a mansion or, mm. a, or a farm, or that he arrives there and Chris is already brainwashed and doesn't know who Rod is, which is a lot more 1984, like even more dour note to end this story on of um, marginalization. What does that mean for and, Rod, though? Mm, well, he's probably screwed too, you would think. Yeah. <laughs> Unless they're all dead already. But that was the ending they didn't shoot. So they obviously didn't go very far with that ending. But Whereas those, the other one, they've actually shot it. So They shot it and it's out there. You can watch it. And it's it's so much more... Like, you walk out being like, hmm, that's interesting social commentary. But I think there's something that's just a bit more satisfying and, and surprising in a good way about it just ending with him and Rod just leaving. I, I think it, <laughs> and why I think they went with the ending they went with, and, mm. and you could easily turn this into a very easy class on discussions of, sure. of themes and, and directions you would take this or, or even auteur's vision. Yep. And 
I think the reason why the ending that as is 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 better is because you know you've been so aggressive with your messaging up until this point sure and if you look at things like hero's journey or even what the protagonist is supposed to overcome does both result in a change but him getting out and sort of overcoming this obstacle it sort of needs that levity there doesn't right. it like i mean would well we... it's almost rewarding him he's rewarded for having solved the the the, the mystery yeah. and killed the evil white family like what would it really so what you're saying with the alternative ending so these mm. policemen come and arrest him is is the fact that no like even though he's out of this, this dangerous bubble the reality of the world around him still exists with this right. preconceived notion and 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 such yeah. and that he's still punished essentially for being black yes that's the idea and a sort of a lose-lose whether he's in this cult family or out in the real world and that that's why i compare it to promising young woman and the reason why i think that that may not work as well is because he's already lost a lot he's had to kill people to get out of this situation mm. he's not the same person he was coming in like he his life will never be the same he has changed psychologically his perception of the world the world that he's going into he's going to think everyone's going to try and kill him like he's already lost so much right and I feel like the well, police jail time that mm. would really just oh, like it would almost be overkill. Sure, because, so I like, think it would how, work in a film that's a little less fun. Because as a horror film, there is an element of fun to this. Yeah, people like to be scared. But I mean, you've watched Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and after sure. that ends, it's like the characters and that have changed because they've undergone this extraordinary sure. event. Well, my my question really, I mean, obviously, it's a very traumatizing event if we got get out too which i think jordan pill's sort of being not unopen to that idea but in a lot of ways he goes into this with you know not overly the suspicion doesn't arise through they're going to try and kill me and harvest my organs but there is sort of this cautiousness of i'm going into this you know this white girl's fully white family and he, he probably doesn't think it's going to be anything more than sort of awkward exchanges which is what it kind of is at, yeah. at the start but does it really change his perception of the world? Oh, I, I think maybe, maybe not. I mean, I'll tell mm. you this, you definitely would be more cautious about who you date. <laughs> um, He's going to have to do a few more left swipes on Tinder before he I think the change, accepts the next one. Why you would never do a second film is because it's a traumatic incident that would never be repeated. Like... Mm. What's he going to find? Another cult that wants to harvest his organs? Oh, like, that made how many uh, Freddy Nightmare and Elm Street? Chris just, need, Chris just <laughs> needs to not date people at that point. If that happens again, um, be single for the rest yeah, of his life. Absolutely, switch teams. Um, <laughs> but, oh, but, but but hey, she switched teams too. One of the photographs. True. So uh, you doesn't matter. You're still going to be careful. Yeah, Speaking of which, Bat, uh, Betty, excuse me, Betty Gabriel, Gabriel, Gabriel. Why am I? My my brain being like this today, but as Georgina and even Daniel Cooley himself, like they're especially those two, their face acting. I mean, it makes the film. Yeah. Their faces make this film. They're they're contorting their faces in ways. Well, frankly, they're not everyone can, and that is so intriguing, and that in, invokes fear and horror, and especially uh, for the character of Georgina, where she's brainwashed. So there has to be fear underneath mm. the face acting that she's doing. 
Anyway, I just I want to give those two a shout out in particular because they're just. I believe Betty Gabrielle was from Walking Dead too. Ah, well there you go. Oh, you know what? I think I do remember a character now. A little later in seasons. But... Sure, yeah, not not too late, but no. Yeah, Sasha's name. Oh, Sasha. Would that be her? I think so. Yeah, she comes that... in when Tyrese comes in. Gotcha, gotcha. That's remind. That tells you how much I remember about season the Walking three, Dead. Season four. <laughs> <laughs> thought I'd throw it out there. Also an upgrade. Ah, oh, there you go. Upgrade. Yeah. We never did upgrade on the podcast. No, we talked about it a little bit. We did, I'm sure. I'm sure we did. Um but yeah, no, I, I, I do think it's it's amazing. The what do they call the hypnotic state? Isn't it called Um Oh well the the sunken place That's is sort it. of the physical manifestation of where they go, I guess. Yeah, because no, you're right, all of the servants would be in the sunken place. Because his bodies are sort of being controlled beyond their, yeah, beyond their will. Hectic. <laughs> it's almost like it's trying to say something, Zeke. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> at its core, it uses a lot of conventional horror trope, uh, horror tropes and styles. Mm. Quick, you know, some er- erratic sprinting, which is yeah, that that's great. That's just classic. Like, you're targeting the audience with that shot, not not necessarily your character and Chris, with that sort of very creepy who would punch my microphone I mean I'm gonna save that I, I pretty much just spoiled my highlight scene already but some of the other things I've noticed Rose's sort of look completely changes once she's sort of revealed to be on the family side oh, yeah. In the very clean pristine sort of white get up her hair sort of slicked back she looks very um sort of devoid of personality in a lot of ways I thought that was interesting the um, gazebo, I think it is. Sort of looks like more of a eulogy or an auction <laughs> than anything else as they're setting that up. And Yeah, it's amazing how they transform uh, sort of these conventional suburban white neighbourhood uh, pieces. Sure, yeah. Uh, twist them in, in into ways. Sadistic, yeah. horrific um, places. and it's, It is really good, the, the turning points and how they sort of manipulate those those narratives really mm. well. Um even well even just I was actually keeping track of the the um the length and it really is hitting your you know, your structure pretty spot on with the midpoint turn and then, you know, Rose's reveal is sort of right at the the penultimate where the second like sixty six percent into the movie. Mm. <laughs> so it sort of is abiding by these very strict rules underneath. But I think like you said, there's so much layered and textured into these conventions that we're used to, especially like these horror conventions. Mm-hmm. And um, not that there's a lot of jump scares in this film, but the way that every, yeah, all of those techniques and all of the lines of dialogue. And it, again, it, it sort of s- spans the scope of subtle to overt where mm. the whole, Oh, I would vote for Obama a third time. And even just the, the heads up that Rose gives, <laughs> About those lines or the, you know, touching the arm and... Well, there was a vert one that was straight up like, oh, they're better in bed, aren't they? Like, get the montage, it gets more overt, the comments mm-hmm. that are made, but I like that it stretches that gamut. Yeah. And that rose Makes is... you feel a little bit uncomfortable. A little bit uncomfortable, but, but you buy it. You buy it because the, the comments from the white folk are just vague enough that you're like, okay, well, there's a bit of ignorance here. It might not be race based what they're saying. I mean, that last comment certainly is. But you know, when, when um, 
what's his name, Jeremy or Caleb Landry Jones, bloody nit ram over here, <laughs> when he's talking about the DNA and you know you just, you know it's in your DNA, you just need to work at it, you'll become a beast. That whole spiel, it's like it's vague enough, just vague enough that okay, maybe he's not talking about black DNA. <laughs> yeah. But then on the other hand, you've got Chris, who's you know it's his girlfriend's family. He wants to impress. He wants to leave a good impression. He's just polite enough to let a lot of those things slide. And that's when it goes into that. Especially on immediate first meetings. like Yeah, yeah. You know, and obviously we never get to see the the development of that relationship. It doesn't go very far beyond beyond that. But what's interesting as well is despite all, and everything, so, you know, there's always, there are jump scares still every now and then. You've got moments where he's he's taking the photo of, of Gabrielle and she notices is it Gabrielle? I think it's Gabrielle. She notices him through the window, and like there's those little moments where you know things are just not right. There is something more horrific, deeply rooted into the story. But when Rose turns around and and she says, "All right, screw it, let's go home," when she gives the protagonist permission to do that, we have this huge sense of relief. Like I'm watching it generally, be like, "Oh, thank God, she's like she's gonna come home with us." <laughs> And it's all part of a coy little yeah. plan of, you know, she's the first person to call the, the copper racist when he wants Chris's ID and not hers. And oh, she's always the one to pick up all the microaggressions that her family have put together. And But it's it's all part of a wider ploy. Yeah. We can't trust her. We can trust Rod. Yeah. But she does get a pretty <laughs> but, good end. It's an interesting, yeah. you know, you brought it up earlier, but that, that final confrontation mm. between the two, obviously... Chris, in, in a ploy to survive, has ended up killing most of, uh, most of the, the family, family. <laughs> um, most of the Armitages. Yep. And, um, you know, we're obviously like, we're in some pretty gory deaths. Um, <laughs> some satisfying leave, deaths. Yep. Yeah, don't leave a lot to the, get the bull by the horns or the, yep. <laughs> go full stag. Um, and obviously, yeah, it, it's led to that, that final sort of, act between him and um was it rose rose and yeah rose, the girlfriend yeah where like he's choking her out which is a far more quiet drawn out sort of scene and well it's more personalized because this is the girl he truly fell for he says he loves her mm-hmm. in this film there, there, there are decent ways into that relationship yeah. enough to go meet the parents and yeah. uh, be willing to struggle through all that stuff <laughs> they de- yeah they make it more personal in that sense. Well, the one thing I picked up from that last thing as well is, is when he sees Gabrielle. Oh, sorry, it is Georgina. My apologies. It is the character Georgina. Um, he chooses to basically rescue her, to put her in the car and drive her away. And that that final note of I wouldn't call that politeness. It's probably a little more than politeness <laughs> to try and save her. But that's sort of what gets him in that final confrontation. Otherwise, he would have just drove away, and Rose would have not caught up. So I'm, I'm, it's interesting what they're trying to say there. Mm. But it was something I noted this time around. No worries. Do you have anything else you'd like to add? Um, no, I think get out. It's, a, it's not not quite our us discussion. We're not here picking out every little tiny no. detail. But I mean, this film, it does a lot more than that because it, as a whole, I mean, like we were saying before. I it's think a tight script. It's a very tight script and it does not pull punches in any way, shape or form. And I think it came out at just the right time to do that. So, I mean, talking about it on a wider scope is appropriate. So, what would your highlight scene? 
Um, so we, we teased it many, many times, and as, as phenomenal as the sunken place sort of introduction is, or the first time we see it, is just absolutely phenomenal filmmaking, the way it literally sinks you in, and the music sort of blurs in, um, not blur, but, you know, bloody mm. Zimmer over here. But I have to give it to specifically that shot where Walter the gardener is sprinting towards the camera. And I remember reading a bit about Pill talking about that moment and taking inspiration from North by Northwest. And you imagine the great train robbery and just talking about the effect that it has on the audience to have something coming right at you. Mm. And I, I, I remember reading that being like, oh, well, you know, this is a very ancient technique. And people watching great train robbery 100 years ago Sure, I get that, but our audience is now a little more equipped to the idea of, of 2D flat screen cinematography, and yet I watch the film, and that shot scares the crap out of me. Yeah, it still works. It still fundamentally creates fear in the audience. And I, I had to give that scene a shout out. It's truly classic filmmaking, right there. What about you, Zach? What's your highlight scene? Yeah, look, I have to say that. Um... It's got to be that first, probably that first sequence with um, when uh, Chris takes the photo and oh, sort of builds in that with the of, flash with the get out, yeah, yeah, with the, with yeah. The, and is that so? That's Lakeith Stanfield. That's Lakeith Stanfield. Yeah, yes. Right. So that's the payoff to him a, in the opening scene. Yeah, but a Judas and Black Messiah preview. But yeah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> um, no, it's a really good scene because it it creates complete uncomfortability, intrigue, and it sort of has a mix of everything we're talking about. Like everyone's making all these weird comments towards mm. Chris and sort of Coolier sort of passing it off, and then the, the turn just snaps and yep. it helps create that. It's a, pretty much at the end of the first act, I'm pretty sure, maybe even the midpoint. It's, yeah, yeah, probably coming towards midpoint, I reckon, but. It hits at a good time when you're ready for that other shoe to start dropping yeah. to the floor. And that, again, that's another comment on the contemporariness of it, where that that comes from such a contemporary idea of us, oh, we accidentally took a photo on our phone with Flash. Mm. Like, that's not something you're going to see in, like, Night of the Living Dead, for example. Yeah. I have to apologize because Jordan Peele wasn't in the bubble. It was Keegan. Michael. Oh, um, you key you the key part up. to Key and Peele. No, Jordan Peele's too classy to be doing. I know like no, the, bubble. the bubble. Don't ever talk about the bubble to me again. <laughs> <laughs> Jordan Peele's actually done good quality stuff. Oh, good stuff. Well, <laughs> get out is available on Prime Video, binge, of course, home video release, all that good stuff. Rent on iTunes and YouTube. It's 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 around. Well, speaking of streaming yeah, platforms, no Jake, what's new to streaming platforms and cinemas this week? Um, talked about Jamie Foxx earlier, and now he stars in Netflix's Day Shift, which he sees him as a hardworking dad who tries to provide for his daughter by using a boring pool-cleaning job as a front for his real gig, hunting and killing vampires. Oh, that took a turn real quick. What kind of genre is this movie, Zeke? Is it an action I'd say thriller? it's drama. It's a drama? It's a, it's a, it's a deep drama? Yeah, a dramedy, maybe. It's yeah. Oh, I see. There's a, bit of, there's a bit of laugh in there. Yeah. Bit of a, <laughs> bit of a cheeky laugh. Uh, Coming to Earth on oh, no, as Will Smith. Oh, the- <laughs> can't think of an iconic Django. What's what's the Django line? I don't know what any of his lines from Django and Django. Um, I thought of one, but we're not allowed to say it. Yeah. <laughs> Coming to Stan, you got Goodfellas and City of Lies. 
Um, Disney Plus, this this actually came out last week. I forgot to mention it, but Prey has released, which I think is a new Predator film. Mm. I always They always do subtle little title conventions. It's like, oh, there's actually an Alien film or a, or a Predator film. Directed by Dan Fatchenberg, who did 10 Cloverfield Lane. Hell yes. Coming to Prime, we have Cyrano, which is the Peter Dinklage film. Very recent drop. Mm-hmm. Uh, Caddyshack coming to Binge. And Secret Headquarters coming to Paramount Plus. Sees young Charlie and his friends discover the headquarters to the world's most famous superhero, hidden beneath his own home. And when the villains attack, they must team up to defend the headquarters and save the world. Ooh. That, that's a bit of Spy Kids vibes right there. Yeah. Yeah, a bit different there. Very interesting. Now, a lot of, lot of stuff coming to cinema, Zeke. Okay. Exciting time. We have Everybody's Omar sees filmmaker Jason Van Gender, Genderen, Genderen, I believe, obsessed with making home videos about his mother and accidentally turning her into an online celebrity. Now, this is playing at Luna this week, and if you go to the Windsor on Thursday the 11th, uh, there'll be a Q&A screening with him, the director. Oh, so, yeah. very exciting. You have Edward and Isabella, which sees a couple travel to the country to decide whether to stay together or end their relationship. I remember... Um, me and, and friend of the show, Perry, way back when. She was on our Ladybird and Princess Bride podcast. Yeah, she was. Yeah. we. I remember we dabbled a while ago on a similar idea, but it was through a podcast. So a couple do a podcast where the podcast is them giving their like top 10 reasons to and not to continue their relationship. Mm. And the audience would have to decide. And the twist ending, I'm pretty sure I pitched it. I was very proud of it was that it ends with them sort of reinvigorating their love, but the audience voting for them to break up. So, of course, they have to break up. What I I am so proud of that ending. <laughs> I have to, I have to so, go home and write this story. Oh, no, you don't steal it from us. Yeah. <laughs> and we got really tied up in whether it actually should literally be a podcast, like one of those fictional podcasts or, or, a, or a short film or... Anyway, it got on the way. This sounds a tiny bit similar to this. It was also shot in Albany during COVID. There you go. Very local. Look at that. Uh, The Princess. Can you guess what this film is, Zeke? Can you guess? Is it about a prince? It's about Princess Diana. And it is a documentary. Who to funk it? Another one. (laughs) We just don't have enough of this. (laughs) Can't get too much of Diana. Oh, God. You also got uh, Hallelujah, Leonard Cohen, A Journey, A Song, the definitive documentary about the singer-songwriter and his renowned uh, him, him, Heim, him, Heim, him, him. Yeah, I think it'd be him. Yep, that's my pronoun. Mm. Anyway, nice. <laughs> and that was my bad joke. There is one more film coming to Cinema Zeke. Yes, but you know what? What? I reckon we should talk about it next week. No worries. Well, what are we watching next week? Next week on the show, Zeke, we're watching Nope. Did you know that the very first assembly of photographs to create a motion picture was a two-second clip of a black man on a horse? And that man is my great-great-grandfather. Great. There's another great-grandfather. But that's why back at the Haywood Ranch, as the only black-owned horse trainers in Hollywood, we like to say since the moment pictures could move, yeah, skin it again.
Force bear a miracle. They got worth for that. Residents in a lonely gulch in inland California bear witness to an uncanny, chilling discovery. It's a Coulier Peel doubleheader. Oh, I love it. He's back. They're back. Let's go. I'm excited. This will be... I'm. Uh, this, pot, this can't be true. But once we covered this, we would have covered the triple threat of Jordan Peele. He's free, free films. Yeah. It's going to be the only director we've covered the whole feature. Well, that's what I was just thinking, have we? Feature catalog. Potentially. I mean, we've done like... Joseph Got 11 had one movie, and we yeah. did that one movie. So there's probably a bit of a maybe for the Maybe for the more than one. Yeah, yeah category. That, that category. Well, I think the true... Triple triple decker would be to do all the Jordan Peele films, all the Ariasta films, and all the Robert Eggert films. So we're still missing The Vich and Hereditary and Disappointment Boulevard when that comes out. Mm-hmm. But oh, and The Northman. We didn't do The Northman. No, of course. But we did Midsummer and, and, we, and the, did The Lighthouse. Exactly. I feel like that the triple 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 squared fret is what we should be aiming for. But I think this is a good start to get the third and final of the Jordan Peele horror film trilogy, unless he decides to make more, out of the bag. No drama <laughs> as well. Thank you for joining us for the Cinema Sideshow Podcast. I was Zeke. I was Jake. We'll catch you next week with... Nope. Hey, Zeke, get out. Okay. Oh, you were meant to say nope.